Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Well, welcome to Faculty Feed. We are really fortunate today to have with us Dr. Brad Chuck, one of our best friends who has worked with us in the Liam program, our leadership program, and whose area of research fixes on this whole notion of compassionate leadership and what really works to engage and motivate employees. Something that obviously we've been stressed over for the past two years, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic, but something that we always have to worry about and do. And uh, with me today, uh, Stacy Sainer, Laura Weingartner are here with us, along with Dr. Shuck. Brad, welcome to Faculty Feed. This is an incredible honor to be a part of this esteemed group here. I wish you guys listening could actually see what's happening in the room right now. It's incredible. There's a vibe. There's a vibe. There's a total vibe. <laughs> Absolutely. So, vibe. so, Brad, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Tell us what you do at the College of Education yep. at UofL. Yeah, so I'm a professor of human resources and organizational development. I've been at UofL now for a little over 10 years. It's the longest I've ever been in one place. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's because I'm really engaged. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the research you've done that, that addresses this whole notion of compassion and leadership. Because you know, sometimes we think of leadership and we don't, that's not the first word that comes to mind, like command and control and dictate. But compassion sounds soft, sounds fuzzy. Does that stuff really work? Yes, it's, it's exactly why we did the research. This started about five years ago when the city of Louisville was named one of the most compassionate cities in the world. Right. And many organizations across the city were asked to sign a compassion charter. And business leaders understandably push back. Compassion, like, do I really need to? Like, we just need to, like, make the quarter. And so the mayor came to a group of HR professionals and asked them to kind of build a business case for what compassion looked like. And we did not know how to define it, understand it, what the leadership meant. And so we set out on a on really like a multi-year project to understand, define, and then measure the ROI of compassion when it's exhibited as a leadership behavior. So when I think about compassion, I'm usually thinking about it in terms of patient care. And I think that that makes sense to me. But but how does that factor into leadership and, and business? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I love to think about the idea of compassion as ubiquitous across context. Compassion is something that a doctor can give to a patient, a nurse can give to their team, a resident can give to their colleagues or their peers or their instructor. It is so much centered on this idea, these principles of things like dignity and authenticity and presence and accountability and integrity. And those are universal principles of of behavior. If we put them into a leadership context, it just means that a leader is leading with those things. What's different about our conceptualization of compassion 
is that traditionally in the compassion literature, it's been looked at as a reactive response to something that's happened. So someone has gotten hurt. There's been a problem. There's a, a tragic event. And as a result of that, we can be compassionate. We reframed compassion as a proactive behavior that leaders can exhibit on a day-to-day -day basis. It's positionless. So when we say leader, I'm not talking necessarily about somebody that's in a specific position of authority or they've been granted a certain title. What I love about the idea of compassion is that it is literally accessible to anyone who is willing to step into that framework. The question is, if most people see compassion as a most easily demonstrated in a healthcare environment. Or like a caring environment, right? Yeah, especially with all the, the, the pandemic issues. And yet certainly there's new article after article, news feed after news feed about compassion and burnout and, and how healthcare providers are really under such tremendous stress. This pandemic, though, has provided challenges not just in the healthcare environment, right? I mean, the, the business world is seeing people resign, people reassess whether they want to work anymore, people want to work from home more than they want to work in person. And you've got to believe all those things have made this initiative that you talked about that the mayor started several years ago even more important now. Yeah, I, I believe that this is this is a, a great reframing of how we understand what leadership is going to look like in the future of work. I was in a conversation earlier today with one of the major transportation carriers in the world, and they use they use the term uh, carrot and stick, and sometimes the stick works better. And I said, no, 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 no. We 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 can't have that conversation. And the future of work doesn't look like a carrot and stick model. The future of work looks like a compassionate model that has dignity for everyone that doesn't make assumptions about empathy and presence and who gets that. It is so much about honoring that space of each individual employee and each individual human being in a way that allows them to live into and lean into their best life. How we do that, I think, is going to be framed as compassion moving forward. So you mentioned a moment ago about the ROI, mm. like the return on investment yeah, for compassion. Has your research kind of figured out what that is? Yeah. I mean, we can. I remember the very day that we ran the first forecasting and predictive models on compassion. And you have to understand, as a researcher, like you do this multi-year project, you gather all of this data, you thematically code all of these interviews, and then you literally sit down with your laptop and you run your first model. And it's possible you will find nothing. Like, right. this is a bunch of hooey and right. nobody should yeah. care about this. Uh -huh. And I remember watching the models populate and being so excited, I called my my wife and I was like, you will not believe what we found. Compassion is literally related to almost everything we can throw at it. People who work for compassionate leaders, they tend to be more engaged. People who work for compassionate leaders and they work in compassionate places, they tend to have higher levels of overall well-being. They have lower levels of stress. They're less likely to have physically manifested pain and they sleep just fine at night. We can go on and on and on. They're less likely to leave the company uh, or leave their organization voluntarily. That We see regrettable turnover really kind of fall through the floor because who would not want to work for someone who is consistently thinking about how can I be present in this moment with this person? 
How can I show empathy? Not just not to show it, but how do I live out empathy? What does it look like for me to be um, present and show dignity and have a sense of uh, empathy right now? I mean, those are things, those are words that we don't talk about very often in the workplace, but that are becoming currencies of what culture is going to look like in the future of work. Why do you think it's so difficult for leaders to make that connection? The results that your team found were so obvious but people at the top are still having that carrot and stick conversation and mindset. Well, the future of work, I think, is going to look very different than what the models of work look like today. The models of work today um, are very much broken. Um, there's a lot of assumptions that get made about positionality. We hire for talent, not necessarily the ability to learn and skills and be able to be agile. And I think all of that is going to change. Historically speaking, we've taught leadership from a particular framework. And those frameworks are oftentimes dominated by assumptions around carrots and sticks and motive, things that motivate and things like cash always motivates. Cash doesn't always motivate. It just doesn't work out like that. And so I think we're seeing a great reevaluation of what it means to be a leader. And we've seen this call for skills in almost every single industry. And there's so many examples in the press today and popular media around leaders who do not do this well and who are now paying the price because they're being held accountable for treating people poorly or taking advantage of the situation. And as a result of that, those bad behaviors are being exposed. So Brad, in the leadership program that you teach with us, there's a model that you talk about called leading above the line as compared to leading below the line. And, and so we've all experienced bosses who had bad behaviors. Can you say something about this above the line model and where they came from and how does it play out in, in what you're describing now? We were so surprised to see these, real, these six behaviors and those were dignity, authenticity, presence, accountability, empathy, and integrity. We were so surprised to see these six things really play themselves out. And we thought, well, for me to live in a place, and I'm going to put myself in a position of, of a leader, but also like a dad and a husband, because those are hats that I also wear. When I am treating my wife with dignity, I am present with her in the moment. When I'm, but when I'm not doing those things, maybe I'm distracted. My daughter is 11 years old now, but I remember trying to get her to learn to ride a bike. Hey, it's hard to ride a bike, right? And I kept, but I kept telling her like, look, once you learn, like, you'll it's never forget. Fun. It's gonna be amazing. Yeah. Riding a bike's gonna be awesome. <laughs> and she was discouraged and she was discouraged and, and she kept like falling over and she was scared and she was nervous. I remember looking at my daughter saying, you don't wanna be the only fifth grader who doesn't know how to ride a bicycle. Not my best moment as a dad, right? <laughs> no, it's not. Not my best moment as a dad. I can't believe you said that. I can't either. And I, <laughs> and I immediately checked myself and I was like, oh my gosh. But that's what she's going to remember for a long time. <laughs> I cannot believe this just came out of my mouth. Oh boy. That's working from a place of humiliation yeah. instead of having dignity in the moment and saying, babe, it's cool. Listen, we'll figure this out together. Being present, having empathy. I rectified that. I made that situation better intentionally, and I apologized. Yes. Living above the line takes courage, and I think it takes a lot of courage to say, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake, I need to take a step back, I need to live in this place here. 
Another example of my own life is my wife is a kindergarten teacher. Sometimes she comes home from work and she just wants to talk to an adult. I get it, right? That's you. That's me. I'm the other adult in the house. Right. And so she'll stand in the doorway and she'll tell me about her day. Well, I'm really busy. I've got a bunch of emails to take care of. And so I'm typing away. I'm typing, 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 typing. And she's talking and she'll say, did you hear what I said? To which I reply, yes, honey, we've been married 20 years. Of course, you're the most important person in my life. And she will then say, well, what did I say? And I got nothing, guys. Yeah. I got zero. There's nothing for me to give you. And so that's being distracted versus being present. Now, these things don't live in silos. It isn't about holding someone accountable in itself. It's holding someone accountable with dignity and having empathy for that person in the moment, being present and having a sense of integrity to have that conversation. Having difficult conversations sometimes means having courage to even bring up those conversations. And so I think it's really important that living above that line is where we strive. But even as somebody who came up with the model, it's something that I have to be intentional about every day. It's not something that just happens. It's something that I'm working on every single day. Yeah, it's not intuitive. It's a struggle each day. And I can assure you that the only time I've been in trouble with my wife now are 41 years. It's when I'm absolutely caught flat-footed, not listening. <laughs> and so I'm trying to get better at it. And so there are some like physical things you can do, like turn your body so that you're square with her, yeah. eyes to eyes, right? And even then, I'm thinking about the email I should have been writing, right? Totally. You mentioned the notion of being present. We don't often think of that as a leadership skill. It implies you're, you're not talking. You might be listening to them and engaging them, maybe even asking them their opinion about something. I, I'm, I'm coming to understand more and more about listening this past couple of weeks because I'm working on a project separate from this where listening is a big part of it. And it's forced me to re-look at how well do I listen, and it reminds me just how hard it is. What do you tell leaders? managers of people in whatever industry so certainly healthcare is an issue but but in academics and in anything else because it's people stuff what do you tell them about the importance of listening as a component of this compassionate leadership living above the line model when we really listen to someone when we're when we hear them and we might even say things like i see you and i value i'm listening yes i'm hearing you I'm watching your body language. I'm understanding the situation here. I think this become incredibly difficult in a remote work setting because I can be on a meeting and checking my email and working on a project at the exact same time and no one knows it. But I, I'll tell you, in those moments, I'm very distracted, I'm very disconnected, and it's hard for me to focus. Many of the people in our audience are faculty at the Health Sciences Center. So they're doctors and they're dentists and they're nurses and they're public health officials where they are directly in contact with people who are in trouble. They're sick, they're in a hospital, they're coming to you in a clinic setting, and, and they have a story to tell. They've been maybe waiting a week or a month or three months for that time with you as the clinician in order to tell the story. From the nursing faculty, they're dealing with training young students to be good listeners at the bedside because from, they're the people at the bedside all day long. The doctors come and go, mostly go. The nurses are there all the time. And, and so in those healthcare settings, it would strike me that these faculty, our faculty, 
we really have to be intentional about great listening and about being focused on what people are really saying. And so I don't want the people in the audience to think this is for deans and department chairs. This is this leadership thing. Just be more mindful of your faculty and everything's going to be fine. This is something we work at at work, in clinical settings, at home, as you've raised. And this is just part of being a human. This is part of treating people with dignity and authenticity. So what you're telling us is this leadership thing is not simply relegated to a work environment. This is something we use in all aspects of our life. As someone who was recently in a patient environment, that sense of being heard makes all the difference in the perception of care that I feel like I'm getting yeah. and the quality of care. And I remember leaving the doctor's office, uh, looking at my wife and saying, he really listened to us and being transformed by that. That's what compassion is. It isn't a transactional experience. It's, I give you this, you give me that. It's transformational because it's complete. It's oftentimes completely unexpected. And maybe I'm conditioned based upon past experiences, but I'm telling you, when I've been the one in the room and I feel as if someone is hearing me, not just my words, but they're hearing how I'm feeling and what I'm saying and how, how this moment is impacting my life and the potential consequences of it. And when I feel heard, it changes everything about, yeah. about the context, everything. All of the traits that you describe, integrity, empathy, these are traits that people want to embody. So if you're a leader, why are you not using these traits? I'll give you two reasons for that. The first one is sometimes it seems faster to go below the line. It's just easier to be detached. It's easier to get my daughter to ride, learn to ride her bike by telling her she doesn't want to be the only fifth grader to not know how to ride a bike. It seems that way, but it's not. Feels those, effective. Yeah. yeah, those shortcuts don't work. The second is sometimes we've never seen anybody do it. One of the things that we learned in our research in the most recent research project on compassion is that there's a social learning component around compassion. If you haven't seen someone role model it, you don't even know it's accessible as an option. We asked this question, where did you learn to be compassionate? Where in your life are there examples of compassion? I'll tell this one story as an example. A female executive in a for-profit company. And she recounted her mom and her dad and her brother would go to the grocery store sometimes when she was a kid. Her brother was special needs. And special needs um, uh, to the point where he would have awkward outbursts in the middle of the grocery store. And every time that uh, her brother had these awkward outbursts, her and her dad would walk away but her mom never left. And she recalled with tears in her eyes that as she watched her mom endure the outburst, she learned what it looked like to be compassionate in the moment. And it was at that moment and in those imprinted moments in her life that now allowed her to access compassion in a completely different way. Compassion, we... There's a disorienting dilemma that has to occur that we then access. I can be dignified. I can be present. I can have empathy. I can have integrity in this moment. Or it is too easy to slip into the places of dishonesty and detachment and humiliation. 
there's this other thing that I've read that you have written and you talk about sharing an umbrella. Yeah. I think about what does it mean to share your umbrella? And I love the analogy of we're walking down the street. It starts to pour down rain and the thunder is booming and the wind is howling and I have an umbrella and I open up my umbrella and I share my umbrella with you. I don't share it with you because there's an expectation. I don't share it with you because I have to. I don't get mad at you. I don't yell at you. Stacy, what for crying out loud, you didn't watch the weather. Do you weather not today? have the weather channel what on your wrong? phone? Like, I mean, really? It's it gave you an alert. It told you it was gonna rain. Right. I have never seen someone share an umbrella yelling at the other person that they have underneath their umbrella. You know what I see? Smiles. Yeah. I see people helping each other, covering each other up. It means sometimes sacrifice. It means sometimes that maybe my shoulder gets a little bit wet. Um, it may mean sometimes that my uh, that I have to walk out in front or I have to hold this a little bit higher. But I've never once in my life that I can remember regretted sharing my umbrella with another person who was in need in the middle of a rainstorm. And for me, this is the analogy of compassion. Compassion isn't something that we do because we have to do it. We do it because we get to do it and we have the resources to share with other people. And when we do that, we transform the entire context. And you've talked about that having the resources to do that. Mm. And I think some of that leans towards the issue of burnout, totally. right? So people run out of those resources and that may be why they're slipping below the line, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. compassion fatigue is real. And the pandemic has certainly taught us that fatigue in this area leads to things like burnout uh, and high chronic stress. There are three kind of anecdotes to that that, that we would tell from our research. The, the first is, a really deep sense of belonging. When we talked to people about when they were fatigued and when compassion had a cost, a specific cost, like it cost you sleep, it cost you health, it cost you a marriage, it cost you a relationship, a job. Tell us about those times. What helped people overcome fatigue before it got to a place of unhealthy behavior was a deep sense of belonging. As human beings, we have a deep sense and a deep need to be connected to other people. We need to have a tribe. We need to know that we belong. We can be ourselves. I belong to something. The second is purpose. For some, that's really purposeful work. It's meaningful work. For others, it's purposeful work in a community or with a group or, uh, or with something that's outside of, um, of your home or your office. The third thing, and I think this is particularly important, people told us that the way in which they mitigated uh, compassion fatigue was to have a routine that helped them refill their buckets. For a lot of people, they talked about running, or they talked about going to the gym, or they talked about having reflection time in the morning to reframe their mind. And it's important to know that compassion is not an unending reservoir that can be drawn upon 100% of the time. That becomes unhealthy. We have to have an ebb and flow in how we utilize those resources. But belonging, purpose, and routine tend to refill those buckets and help us as an anecdote against that compassion fatigue, insulate ourselves. And hopefully 
we have a, a, a group of people around us that can tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, it might be time for you to take a time out or to take a 30 minute break here. So as leaders, we need to notice the things around us. That's part of this mindfulness and being present. You've related in the umbrella story in the past, the noticed empathize act, sort of three parts to this, that noticing alone is not enough. Noticing and empathizing is not enough, that you actually need to do something as uh, any person, or especially for leaders. So the Gallup organization tells us year after year when they do these surveys, right, that at best 30% of employees are really engaged. They're, they're rowing the boat with you, aligned in purpose and going at it. Half the, uh, the employees are just sort of sitting there, they punch a time clock, they come and go. And 20% are actively being disruptive. They're rowing the other way, <laughs> they're trying to jump out the boat. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. So I can only imagine that when Gallup does its survey in 2021, in the year two of the pandemic, that there might be even more of that. What's your sense of these basic truths you're talking about? Because your research long predates the, the pandemic time. What's your sense of the, the, the significant change that's happened? And more importantly, what do, our, what do our listeners do in response to that? Do they get training? Do they just hope they're more mindful? I mean, what, give me something tangible. What's their application for this week when they hear this? They're going to take it up and say, you're right. Brad's right. We're going to do blank. What do you tell them? Interestingly, uh, Gallup has released some preliminary statistics on this, and it's worse this year. And nobody's surprised by that. Yeah, sure. Um, The the idea of of being able to make an impact here, I think, is grounded in something that I call the cumulative effect. And that is, it is in those things that are easy to do and easy not to do. Let me give some very specific recommendations. So let's say that you want to be more mindful, right? Um, there, you may be listening and you say, gosh, I just really want to be a more present, mindful leader. Well, uh, the advice to you might be, you're going to wake up, uh, 15, 20 minutes before everybody else in your household, you're going to spend some time maybe writing in a journal and you're going to uh, reflect about your day. Just write down three words of gratitude. Here are the three things that I'm, I'm thankful for. And here's why we, we call this the cumulative effect. It sounds easy. Sounds really easy. Sounds easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm ready to go. You mean uh, to be mindful, all I got to do is wake up 20 minutes earlier and write down three simple words in a journal? And and we have to pay for this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the kind of advice. Who is is this guy giving this advice? He makes money at this? Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, surprising. You know what's easier? It's the snooze button. Yeah. Well, see, uh, my house, my house launches at 5 15 in the morning that's Ooh. early it's early it's early I, we've got a, a kindergarten class to get to and a fifth grade class to get to on the bus and it's easy it's easy for me to say you know what i'm just gonna wake up 10 minutes 15 minutes earlier but man when that alarm goes off at five instead of five fifteen. yeah i'm going man i really i really i'd pay someone to let me sleep <laughs> this next 15 minutes right yeah. it's easy but it it our ability to be mindful and present are grounded in things that are easy to do, easy not to do. It's really easy to send a quick text of encouragement. This is something that I've tried to practice in my own life. Mm-hmm. I have a group of guys uh, that I will text fairly regularly when they pop into my mind. And I just send them a quick text. Super easy, very pedestrian. Um, it's easy to do. You know what? See, it's also easy not to do it. And it's easy not to do it because I'm going to go. Well, what if I say the wrong thing, or what if what if uh, what if, what if I wake them up in the morning? Because sometimes I'll text them when I'm at the gym, it, and I'm telling you, like none of that stuff matters. It matters that I sent the text. 
See, compassion doesn't require a response. It only requires that we give. The other person gets to make the decision on whether or not they want to receive that. And that's fine. There's no judgment on that. But I'm going to send the text. I'm going to send the note. I'm going to get up a little earlier. Maybe it's about reading a book. It's it's easy to go to Barnes Noble, get a book you want to read, read a chapter a night. It's easy to do. It's easy not to do that too. You know why? Because there's TV shows on. And I'd rather watch TV. <laughs> Or play video games with my daughter. Yeah. And so these things that are developmental milestones that help us impact our life are those things that are easy to do and easy not to do. And I'm telling you, they work for us or they work against us. And it feels sudden, but it is a gradual small build of habits over time. Brad, you've given us a lot to think about and a lot of great advice. And one of the things that we like to do at Faculty Feed is to give our listeners something to do in this next right. week. So if you could just pick one thing that you think could uh, make an impact on, you know, being a more compassionate leader um, or, you know, being able to share their umbrella, so to speak, what yep. would you tell them to go out and do this week? Yeah, this is an easy one. It, it, it is to take action. Um, I think so, so often we, we see and we empathize and we stop. And my challenge for those listening this week will be to not stop there, but to go the next step to take that action. And it may be um, talking to somebody after a meeting. It could be sending an email. It might be making a phone call that you've been dreading. It might be helping someone with a new skill. It could be reading that book. It might be pouring into yourself. It could be for crying out loud, thinking about your own well-being in your own level of burnout and taking action on that and having self-compassion for yourself in the moment. Those things, I would, my encouragement is going to be to take action. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Join us next time for more, and come hungry.